When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is truly legendary Dan Penn, known as a songwriter, a singer, a player, a producer. Dan, so great to have you on here. Good to be here, Bob. Okay, so you have a new album that comes out. You know, normally I'm against hype in general, but I've been listening to the album and it's really good. Okay. Yeah, that's strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, in an era where there's so much crap out there, let's start from the beginning. The, the album is called Living on Mercy. What made you decide to actually record it? Oh, just uh, wasn't doing anything else. And it's, you know, had a kind of a lull here in the studio. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, I still sing, so maybe I'll make a meal record. Hadn't made one in a long time, so... Uh, just Spooner and I had gone to Japan and made a, made a few bucks and came back. I said, I'll just spend that on my record. And, and so I started. And, uh, you know, we just kept going. Okay, let's stop for a second here. When did Spooner and you go to Japan? We went year before last, I believe, was the, was the last time. So we went, over, we went over and played four or five shows. How does something like that come together? Well, this uh, this uh, fellow who was a promoter, uh, he called me. He called Spooner. He called me. And we got together on Price, and uh, he brought us over. And, you know, it wasn't anything strange, it, it, but it did work out really good. And, uh, you know, what he had was one of the best things in the world. You know, when you go to get on a plane... Or when you get off, there sits somebody with a wheelchair to wheel you to the next to the next gate. So we got wheeled all around Japan and all over America. <laughs> so the the the, the, the uh, wheelchair was, you know, I'll never fly without it now. <laughs> 
uh, speaking to that, as we're all getting up in years, how is your mobility and health? Well, it's like all the people who are 78 years old. I wake up with new little things every day sometimes. But, you know, in general, I still get around pretty good. My balance ain't as good as it was. Uh, I've got other problems in other areas. But uh, overall, in general, I feel pretty good. So um, I felt good enough to make that CD, that record, and uh, I hope I can. If they'll get this COVID thing done, maybe I can get out and do a few shows. And to what degree are you quarantining? I'm here, but if I need to go to the grocery, I'll go. I put on a mask. I go where I got to. You know, uh, I'll quarantine. I've never called it that. I've never considered that's what I was doing. But I guess that's what we're all doing. So, but if I'll go do what I got to do, and I'll wear the mask and uh, get the stuff and bring it home. But uh, pretty soon I'll go back to Alabama. We, we got a place in Alabama. We just came back up here from Alabama to get to take Linda to the doctor. She had to have a uh, pacemaker put in, so I had to bring her in to do that. And uh, I'm doing a few. Uh, interviews like with you i've got one more the 25th and uh, then we're back to alabama and down there we're just out in the country so quarantine we don't even consider that word but i know everybody's having to do what they got to do okay i can see in the video here there's a uh, tape machine behind you so you have a studio there in your home in nashville yes sir i've got a I've got a basement studio. Uh, almost everybody in the music business has got a studio somewhere in their house, some kind. And uh, this one's been here now for what, Ron? About 20 years? Yeah. About 20 years. And uh, it's pretty nice. I mean, I fixed it up pretty nice, maybe too nice. You know? <laughs> but uh, I enjoy it. I can come down here at midnight, you know, in my jammies and work on a song or work on the tape that's already recorded or, uh, you know, just keep, uh, it's, it's a good to have some way you can go remix something real fast or, you know, once you leave the studio, you, you, you're, uh, and your budget's run out, you can't, uh, you can't do no more. But if you got your own studio, the budget never runs out. You can just keep on mixing. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do with Do Right Man back in the 90s. And, but the budget was out. We had to stop. I would have liked to have done some more, but you know how it is. Okay, so what do you have in that studio? I mean, I see the tape machine. What other kind of equipment? Well, there's a, there's an old uh, MCI board here, a 600. Uh, there's a 16-track 2-inch over there. There's some HD24 digital recorders, and there's a, there's a uh, Harrison, Harrison uh, mix, bus. mix Bus, a digital mixer, and that's what we used on this record. We mixed it through that Harrison. Okay, so you tend to, re in this album, do you record to tape or do you record digitally? It recorded digitally. In okay. both places, I believe they were both Pro Tools. So we did that number, and then we brought it back here to my place, and we uh, fixed a few things and, and, and overdubbed some things and mixed everything. 
And uh, is it your room big enough to cut, or is it basically a mixing room? It's big enough to cut four or five people, but we didn't cut here. My board, my console was having some crackling problems. And uh, I called a friend, Buzz Cason, who owns Creative Workshop here, <clears throat> studio over, and a really good studio. And uh, I, I, he said, yeah, come on in. So I went over there and cut three days. We cut half the album. I took a little break, maybe a month, and I tried to get everybody else back together. And, you know, you just couldn't do it. Everybody was running here and there and the studio being booked. And I, I couldn't make it line up. So I called a, a guy in Muscle Shoals or Sheffield, Alabama, uh, at the Nut House. And I was, I was able to... Uh, to land everybody uh, down at the nut house. And so we finished it up. We tracked the rest of the tracks three more days. And then we brought it all back here and started, uh, you know, looking at it pretty hard and what do we need to do and stuff like that. Now, now the vocals came off the floor with the band. I didn't, I didn't redo the vocals. So I fixed a couple of places. But very small places. Okay, so in today's music business, 2020, what are your expectations for a new recording? Where we have streaming dominates, there are umpteen tracks that aren't even listened to on Spotify. It's so different from when you started out and when I started out. So what's it like in your mind making a record knowing how hard it is to reach the audience? I don't really know, you know, that, that that's not my part. <laughs> I sing, I play, they sell. So I don't really know how that works. I don't know anything about downloading. Uh, you know, I'm a CD man. I don't even know anything about vinyl, but they say they're going to put this on vinyl. So, you know, so be it. I got a record player still, so I'll listen to it. But I really like CDs, you know, they sound just like the studio. And... That's fine with me. But these kids, you know, they got other ideas. <laughs> okay, let's go back to the beginning. You're from Alabama? Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, especially Northerners like myself, if they've even been to the South, they don't really know much about it. So where in Alabama did you grow up? I grew up in a little town called Vernon, uh, Vernon, Alabama. And where is that? That's uh, down between uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Roll Tide, you know. It's between there and uh, and Columbus, Mississippi, right on the state line, Mississippi-Alabama state line, halfway down in the state. And uh, you grew up, how many kids in the family? I had, uh, I had three sisters. I've got one left. And where are you in the hierarchy, oldest, youngest? I'm... Uh, I got one sister older. I had one sister older, and I'm next. And then I had, I've got Peggy left, and my baby sister Vicky got killed in a car crash in '79. So, wow, uh, just me and my sister. Okay, so what did your parents do for a living back in there in Vernon? Well, first they were farmers. Daddy was a farmer. Mother helped. He would. She was a farmer too. They had cotton and all that stuff. And uh, then they, about 49, they started working at the garment plant in Columbus, which is 30 miles away. 
And so uh, they worked and government plants in, in that part of the country just took over. They were in every little town and everybody had a job and everybody made, you know, some money. And that's what raised us all, really, except for the crops that were there before. And uh, so they made men's trousers. And Daddy worked uh, in, that, in the shipping department, and Mother worked in something there. And so, you know, that's back when money was money, you know. About $35, $40 a week was a big paycheck. So you grew up in Vernon. How many people in Vernon? Oh... Back then, probably about the same now, maybe 1,000, maybe 1,500, maybe 900. I, it's hard to say the surrounding area. It, it's not a lot of people, but it's got a couple of red lights. It is the county seat of Lamar County. And your house that you say you're going to return to, is that in Vernon? No, sir. It's outside of Vernon, a few miles. That was, uh, that was my wife Linda's grandparents' farmhouse. It's an old farmhouse, over 100 years old. And uh, she was born in the front room where we sleep. So it's really personal to her. And it's got the front porches on the front, and it's got the back porch on the back, and it's got a hallway all the way down through it. So it's very old-fashioned. And uh, we rebuilt it years ago. Okay, so you're growing up in Vernon, what does your life look like, you personally? Well, I'm going to school, you know, a lot. I'm going to high school. I'm going to grammar school. Uh, I started uh, playing a little music, uh, started writing a few little songs. <clears throat> and um, finally, I found this place in Sullivan. That's 10 miles north. And uh, they're having a square dance. They call it a square dance up there. But what it really was, was a little rock and roll show with a few square dances thrown in. And so I went up there and started hanging out with them and setting in a little bit with the band. Uh, Benny Cagle and the Rhythm Swingsters. He played <laughs> snare. He play, it was, you know, he'd play the square dances with a fiddle, and then he'd play the snare with the bow. Very good. He missed it. But anyway, one of the guys in the band was Billy Sherrill. Oh, really? Yeah, he was... He was playing electric sax. And he said, I hear you write songs. Somebody had got to him and told him that. He, I said, oh, yeah. So he said, play me one. So I played him a song. He said, why don't you come up to Florence? We've got a little studio up there. We just might cut a record on you. I said, oh, well, great. You know, I'm about 17 years old. I need a record. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I go up there. And I put down four or five songs that I'd written. That's about all I'd written. But one of the songs was called Is a Bluebird Blue. And I I put it down and uh, came on back home and wasn't too long that uh, I got a call from Tom Stafford. He was kind of the head guru up there at that little studio. It was over his father's drugstore that he had a little studio. And uh, he said, Dan, he said, you've got a song on the charts. No kidding. What is that? He said, it's a Bluebird Blue by Conway Twitty. I said, he cut that. He said, he cut it. He said, and it's going up the charts. You're moving 10 places next week. 
And the reason I'm calling you is, is you need to sign up with BMI. And if you do, since you're moving that much next week, they'll, they'll front you some money. Do you need some money? I said, yes, sir. <laughs> he said, how much you need? I said, 700 bucks. He said, I'll send it right on down. Well, what that, what that number, how it came up $700. <clears throat> I had, I had been down to my uncle Ruben's place. He lived just right by us in the country. And he had to rebuilt a 1954 Chevrolet. He had put a V8 in it and everything. You couldn't tell it that anything had ever been done to it. And uh, I tried to buy it. I said, Uncle Ruben, why are you taking this car? He said, it ain't for sale. Really? No, it ain't for sale. I knew he usually would sell anything, you know. But so uh, I said, well, what, well if you was going to sell it, reckon what you'd have to have. Now, this is back when $100 was a lot of money. And I said, what, what do you think you'd have to have if you was going to sell it? He thought about it. He said, oh, he knew I didn't have any money. I'm just a country boy at that point. And uh, he said, oh, I, if I was going to sell it, I'd have to have something like $700. <laughs> so... I went on, and then I got, then out of the blue, I got that call, you know, and I, <laughs> so I go back, I get my check, and I cash it, and I go back down to Uncle Ruben, and I say, hey, how are you, Dan? What, what, what are you up to? I said, oh, I just came after this Chevrolet, Uncle Ruben. He said, what Chevrolet? I said, this one parked right here. He said, I told you it wasn't for sale. I said, yeah, but you also said that if you're going to sell it, you 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 might take $700 for it. He said, did I say that? I said, I, think, I thought you did. But I said, but if you don't want to set it, that's okay. But I started pulling my money out about that time. You know, and I kind of showed him my money and shuffling around a little bit. And he'd look at me and he'd look at that car. Then he'd look at that money. He'd go round and round. Finally, he grabbed that money and said, I'm a man of my word. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I got my car. <laughs> um, he didn't pay me much for the song, but I did make some BMI. <laughs> okay, a couple of questions. Did that car treat you right? It's a beautiful car. I didn't treat it right. You know, I'm very young and very crazy. I mean, uh, I'd have to say. Uh, it, it treated me right. It, it never, what you got, Ron? I'm just moving you down. Okay, bit. yeah. I pulled the chrome off. Uncle Ribbon had fixed it up so nice. It was a little 210 four-door. Had the little had the little hubcaps. Uh, you could drive it. You'd never think it had a V8. But it was a brand-new 56 V8 with overdrive up here. And it was sweet, sweet, sweet. And uh, I started hot-rodding it and pulling this off and taking that off and changing this and changing that. Finally, one night, the hood blew up. <laughs> in despair, I, I traded it off. So wish I wish I'd have kept it. Well, certainly today. Let's go back also. Okay, was there music in the house? What inspired you to play? Well, yeah, we had we had daddy daddy had a guitar, and um, he was playing it all my life. You know, I could hear him playing it, and sometimes he'd you know he'd sing stuff like Fraulein, Fraulein, you know those old. Uh, Jimmy, uh, what's his name? Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers. Those kind of songs. He would do those kind of songs. 
And sometimes he would have an electric guitar player coming in from like Winfield, that's like 30 miles to the east. Somewhere like that, there was a guy who had a black electric guitar. Wow, you know, that was something else. And he, he'd play with Daddy. And, and then my school teacher played fiddle, and he'd play with Daddy's. But there was front porch all the way. You know, they never played a gig. They just played on the front porch or the back porch, and they enjoyed music. And Daddy was, uh, he was a song leader in the church. Mother was a piano player in the church. And so I had music all around. And but when I got about nine, he bought me a little silver tone guitar. And I would sit and frail it when they played, and I'd, I'd kind of try to, be a musician too, but I couldn't play the chord. Finally, when I got about 15, I, I, I got daddy to show me the open chords at least. And, and so when I, when I got on up a little bit, uh, I started playing his Gibson some, and it was a lot nicer, you know. I believe it was a 49, he bought it new. And so, I don't know, maybe about... Uh, 1956 or seven, he gave it to me. Gave me the Gibson, big yellow jumbo. Boy, it was sweet. And uh, I had it in the trunk of my car, and I came to Nashville, and it got it got uh, took out of my car. So, wish I could find that one. Right. Okay. So your first instrument is the guitar. What inspires you to write songs? Well. What inspires me is what's always, it's the fact that I'm going to make a commitment, whether it's to myself or to somebody else. Like if it's, if me and Spooner are going to get together or me and or somebody else, if we get together, I make a commitment. I may not have anything. I'm, there's no inspiration yet. There's nothing, maybe. Maybe I'll have an idea, but, you know, I, I call songwriter sessions when I don't even have anything. I, I just always pray, Lord, if you can't give it to me, give it to him. And, and you know, usually somebody will walk in with something, either an idea or they can just sit down on a piano and play the right chord, and I'm off and running. I make a commitment on the spot to write a song today. And, you know, we usually do. Okay, but back when you were a kid, what inspired you to write songs? Oh, just the idea that I wanted to write a song. I, I don't know. You know, I remember I plowed a mule. Daddy, when Daddy went to work at that plant, he he uh, bought me. When I was nine years old, he he sold his two mule outfit. He had all the plows and the mules, and he farmed. But when he went to work at the plant, he decided he'd get me a one mule outfit and keep me busy. He didn't want me to to go wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to keep me busy. So, you know, what was the question? Sorry. question is, when did you start writing songs and what was the inspiration for that? Yeah, okay. So I would hear Hank Williams on the radio and other people on the, on the radio. And, and while I was plowing, I, I couldn't remember exactly the words. So I remember, I remember making up words. The jumble, you know, I, I could make up my own words when I, when I ran out. I couldn't remember. I still can't remember lyrics, but that's the first thing I remember about writing a song. Uh, I can't remember the other first part. I don't. I can't remember. Well, let me ask you this: 
did you have a dream of making music your life as a career? No, I can't say I did. I was, I was, I was too young. But you know, along about uh, my teens, early teens, I, you know, I, I started here in WLAC. <clears throat> John R. and all these guys playing black music, and that really perked my ears up. I mean, I. I, I, I was used to church music. I, I would sing with uh, all of Daddy and them at the church, but when I heard the black stuff, it was different, you know, and it like kind of flipped my switch on a little bit. And uh, then here comes Elvis and all those guys, uh, Jerry Lee and Elvis and Charlie Rich and all those 50s guys. And I really loved all that. But then Elvis started making those movies, and I kind of fell out of that that deal right there. I didn't much like that anymore for a while. And then here comes Ray Charles. <clears throat> and Ray turned us all on. He, he turned on every Southern singer. And uh, we all wanted to sound just like Ray. And I could sound pretty much like Ray. Uh, I could sound like Ray and James Brown and Bobby Blue Bland. But one night in Birmingham, Alabama, after my show, I was playing six nights a week. I went to another club that stayed open later, and I walked in. Here's a guy up there playing a B3, and his name is Charles Ray. And he sounded exactly like Ray Charles. And I said, my Lord, you know, we're, so this is a losing <laughs> proposition. <laughs> so uh, one long after that, that I got in with fame, and I, I started looking for my own voice. Okay, a couple of questions. Uh, on the Conway Twitty song, did they take any of the ownership, or do you own all the publishing on that? Well, that's a... Actually, I never got paid for the publishing. And I think they gave Conway 25% of the publishing. I don't, I'm not sure. But anyway, I, you know, I just let it go. I said, hey, I got my BMI, I got my door open in the music business. It's okay. I mean, I'd like to have all the money, but, you know, you don't get everything all the time. And so, but it wasn't but about a dozen years ago that my friend Donnie Fritz, who just passed away, uh, come to me one day and he said, Dan, I've got the publishing to Bluebird. He said, I'm going to give it to you. I said, okay, give it to me. So he signed it over to me and, uh, so now it's come home. Of course, there's nothing happening. <laughs> to it, but, <laughs> but I got it, you know. Okay, before you meet Billy Sherrill, how much are you gigging around? You're talking about playing six, seven nights a week. Were you doing that frequently? That's a little bit later than Billy Sherrill. Okay, so after, so after the Conway Twitty hit, and after you get the car, what's your next move? Well... You know, I was playing a lot of little high school gigs with, I had a little high school band. I had a piano player and a guitar player and a drummer. And so we played some high school hops and stuff around. After I got the car, I started dating my wife and uh, who came out, Linda, Linda Pounders. And uh, later we married and, uh, but, uh, it's hard to say, you know, I just did the teenage stuff. 
So how did you end up going to fame? Well, it was Billy Sherrill. He said, play me a song. He said, we've got a studio up, up in Florence. Come up, we might cut a record on you. Well, I went up and I put these songs down. And, and then went on with the car thing and everything. And somewhere along there, I was playing six nights a week. I was, I was drinking a bit, you know. My mother didn't care for that. Uh, my aunt came in from Dallas, Texas. She said, let me have him. Send him over here. Let him stay with me. He'll get a job. We'll, we'll see what we can do with him. So I did. I went to Dallas in the 54 Chevrolet. And I got a job at the Cokesbury Hymnal. I was a mail order clerk like my daddy. And um, so um, it went along real good. I, I worked in that place about a couple of months. I was doing okay. I was a pretty good pretty good hand, I reckon. They, they seemed to like me. And uh, it was winter. And Dallas is cold in the winter. So I drive my 54 Chevrolet down to the parking lot. Then I had to walk over to the Cokesbury Hymnal, which was... Not too far, but enough to get you cold. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, I'm, I'm working, I'm working, and I started dating a little girl out there. And uh, we ended up at a little Dairy Queen or something like that one night. Uh, we stopped to get a Coke or something, you know. And, and I'm sitting there, and there's two little guys, a lot younger than me, out on the sidewalk. They had a little guitar amp and a little electric guitar and a mic. And they were singing and playing and having a big time. And all of a sudden, I got so lonely for the music business. And and I just wanted to sing something. I got out and asked the guy, I said, you mind if I play your guitar? I want to sing one song. He said, no, that's fine. So I, I sang a song. <clears throat> I got back in my car. I took that girl home. I turned in my notice. I said, okay, that's it. It's either music or nothing. So came back to Alabama. And married Linda, and you know, it, and I went to Fame. I, right after that, I went to Fame, and I asked. Excuse me, I went to Muscle Shows, and I asked around about Rick because I, Rick was always the one. Who could Rick Hall. Fame. Rick Hall. And so I asked about Rick, and his father-in-law said, "Well, he's down at his studio." And I said, "Oh, where's that?" And he told me, and I went down there, and, and I found Rick. Uh, Rick was one of the people in that studio up there at Tom Stafford's. So it was Billy, Rick, and Tom Stafford. So anyway, I find Rick. Now, this is a few years later, maybe two years later. After, you better move on. He had already cut that on the author. And so I found Rick walking around on his cement pad. I said, hey, Rick, what you doing? He said, I'm building my studio. He said, next thing out of his mouth, he said, why don't you come to work for me? I said, doing what? And he said, writing songs. Because he knew I'd had as a bluebird blue. There wasn't too many kids walking around that had a hit at my age. I said, what's that pay? He said, 25 bucks a week. So <laughs> I, so that was a lot of money back then. Don't, you know, it seemed like nothing now, but 25 a week. Plus, I played on the weekend. I made another 50. Hey, I'd make it 75 bucks, of course. I didn't get home with much of it because, like I said, I was drinking. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, I'd go down to the garden one day, and I told, I told Daddy, I said, Daddy, I'm moving to Florence. And he said, what are you going to do? 
I said, I'm going to write songs. He said, uh, well, I don't know nothing about writing songs, son. He said, but if you if you want to, I can get you on where I'm working, making the same thing I'm, I'm making, $40 a week. I said, Daddy, you better hold on to that job. I may need it. But right now, I got to go give this a try. He said, I understand. Go do it. So I did. I went. I moved to Florence, and it took me five years. I mean, we grow plenty of good songs in those five years, but it took five years to get to "I'm Your Puppet," which was a big hit. And uh, you know, I, I was always doubtful up until that point about all this songwriting and stuff. So after that, I said, "Okay, you're a songwriter. Don't look back." Keep on going, and that's what I've done. I've just kept on trying along. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so you're, he builds the studio. You're a songwriter for those five years. Other than writing songs, you do anything else at the studio? Do you play? Do you clean? Do you work the board? Or are you just a songwriter? Well, it all came down in around 64. The band that Rick had in the studio was David Briggs, Norbert Putnam, and Jerry Carrigan. That also happened to be Dan Penn and the Paul Bears. We, we, we traveled in a hearse, and we went to all these uh, fraternity parties in Alabama, Auburn, Mississippi State, all around the South. And we played those every weekend. And all of a sudden, these guys were great now. They were a great band, and they were great in the studio. But all of a sudden, they got a call from somebody up here in Nashville, and they wanted them to come to Nashville to be, uh, be the session players, the new bunch. So they did. They went to Nashville, and I'm sitting in my car looking at the uh, doorway of Fame, and and I'm kind of I'm kind of kind of sad, you know. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, what have you got to be sad about? There's the door. Why don't you just walk through that door and learn everything you can about studio, about songwriting, about record production, about engineering. I want you to learn all you can about that and uh, keep on writing songs. And so that's what I did. I walked in there and I started I started hanging out uh, at other people's sessions, like the people from Atlanta would come in, Tommy Rowe, the Towns, people like that. And I, I was a gopher, you know. I, I didn't have anything on the session, but I'd say, you need cigarettes, you want some burgers, I'd go get them. And uh, suddenly I was part of the session, you know, so. So I started watching everything I could absorb in it, and and it was quite a lot. And you know, that's that's what makes me what I am. I'm, I mean, I I know how to do that part. <laughs> okay, so how does I'm Your Puppet come together? Well, I just bought a little twelve-string Stella guitar. Never had one before, but I bought one little little brown one. Had a sweet little sound. And, and, you know, Miss Splinter, we were over to the studio, right, and fixing the right, and I just break out that little Stella, and I started ding, 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 and he starts throwing chords out of me. Next thing I know, I'm singing about a little puppet because it sounded that way. And it was called The Puppet. Pull a string and all, we get you, I'm the puppet. Okay, so it's The Puppet all the way through, and I, I've always liked things that were called The the letter, the puppet. Anyway, these guys, these guys go up to uh, James and Bobby Purify. Don Schroeder brought them to fame, and I get the gig. By this time, I'm the second engineer, and so I'm engineering on "I'm Your Puppet" with the Purify brothers. And they had gone upstairs, like many artists did, and found them a song. And they kind of changed it around a little bit. You know, they put they put it to I'm Your Puppet. They, they, they took it up about a click or two on the speed. I wasn't real crazy about all that. I thought, well, they're messing with my song. You know, when you're young, you don't want anybody playing around with your music. Uh, later, I found out everybody does. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I engineered the record and, you know, didn't think too much of it. Later, it came out on the radio. I heard it. it sounded great. 
I thought. Then when they sent me a check, I said, that's my favorite version. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how do you meet Spooner Oldham? Same little place. Uh, I met everybody. I met uh, I met all the Paul Bears, Rick's band. I met Spooner. I met Fritz. I met everybody that I ever met in, in, in Muscle Shoals at that little studio up there, uh, uh, Tom Stafford's little place. It was called Spar Music. So I met Spooner up there, and uh, he was a laid-back cat. And I, me and Donnie Fritz had wrote a couple of songs, and Spooner, I seen him play it, and I heard him play it, and I liked the way he played, and we, we, we became pretty good friends. And uh, we started hanging out, writing some. And, uh, you know, sometimes we'd write two songs a night. Sometimes two out of two was pretty good. Sometimes you didn't get anything, but most times we did. So I met him way back there. Okay, when you were writing all these songs at Fame, was anybody cutting them and they were stiffs, or you just cut demos and nothing happened to them? Basically that, cut demos and nothing happened. You know, uh, like I said, we were writing all these songs four nights a week, you might say. And uh, so let's just say we averaged two songs. That's eight songs. That's eight songs a week. Uh, we ended up with maybe 102 songs, you know. And at that point, not too many people were coming. I mean, you know, some of Tommy Rowe cut one. He hit, well, we got a backside on, on everybody. Everybody's got the blues. Well, we had one called Sorry I'm Late Lisa. Not a very good song, but hey, by politics, because we were in Rick Hall's uh, uh, production company, we got the cut. That's the way things happen in the music business, you know. You get a cut because somebody knows somebody or you know somebody, and they like you, and they kind of like your song, and they want to help you out. So we, we got cuts like that. We got backsides, and, and we, got a, we got a Joe Simon cut or two, Let's Do It Over. It wasn't a big record, but it was a good record. And um, we, we, we got the puppet, and, and then Percy Sledge came along and cut some of our songs, and, and then other black artists. So, you know, Rick would come to me and say, I got this guy I'm going to cut next Tuesday. I need something up-tempo or whatever. And so I would go to work. And, and sometimes I would tell Spooner, most of the time, I'd say, we need an up-tempo for this guy. And we usually would come up with something that he'd cut. And Wilson Pickett, you know, whoever, come into the studio. Uh, we got cuts like that. And was Spooner on Rick's payroll, too? Yes. Uh, he... he uh, he was also making 25 a week. When we first started writing, he wasn't, but Rick signed him a little bit later, and we were both on his payroll. Okay, so what's the next step after uh, I'm Your Puppet? Oh, well, a lot of cuts, but uh, finally, like I say, I was a second engineer. So, so Rick Hall came to me one day and said, Dan, today... At 2 o'clock, there's a, there's a black guy coming in here to try out. He, he, wants, he wants me to hear him. And I can't be here. 
would you put down a tape on him? I said, yeah, sure. So around two o'clock, here comes Percy Sledge, who I did not know, and two more guys, friends of his, and they were dragging a B3 organ, complete with a Leslie. And they came into the studio. I threw up a few mics, and, and I cut this one song, and it was it went something like, Oh, I love you, baby. And he had this descending chord line, which is, When a man loves a woman. Well, the way it got there was some friends of mine, but I'll tell you about that. But anyway, so I put him down, and next day I played the tape to Rick. I said, Rick, this guy's great. You ought to hear him. So I played it to him. He said, I don't think so. I said, really? I said, you don't like this guy? He said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't hear it, Dan. I don't hear it. And I said, well, let me cut him. I want to produce something. I don't want to do that either. And at that point, you know, I'm young. I'm trying to take a step further. I've done everything I can do in the studio except I hadn't produced any records. So, you know, my little brain starts clicking. Long about that time, I run into a guy named Chip's Mumlin. And uh, he had a studio in Memphis. I went up, spent a, little, spent a few days with him, and we became good friends. And my contract was coming to an end. He had a studio. And uh, so I went to Memphis to go to work for American Studios, right? And I went there because I thought I could produce a record. And I had it in my, in, my, in my mind and in my heart that I was going to cut a hit. Don't ask me how I know these things, but back then I knew. I just knew things sometimes, you know, and I knew I was going to cut a hit. And so I told Chips, me and him had gone around co-producing, so to speak, some stuff. and But basically he was cutting it and I was going, oh, yeah, or I don't know about that. And finally, I told him, I said, look, I want to cut a record by myself. I don't want you anywhere around or nobody else. I'm going to cut a hit. He looked at me kind of funny. He said, okay. I said, give me your worst artist. I don't care. It don't have to be anybody. I was really, really putting myself out there. But that, I did that back then. You know, I was pretty forward. <laughs> so he walks. He said, okay, here's this little group. You can talk to them. So they came to the studio and they had a regular little band and they had this vocalist and he was carrying on cussing a little and basically upsetting the vibes in the room. And, and I, I told their, their, their manager, I said, okay, I'll cut them, but bring me another singer. I can't work with this guy. So I said, Number four song on this reel right here. Learn, have them learn this song and meet me here back here at 10 o'clock, two weeks from Saturday. Okay, they go away and he knows what to do, get another singer. So the next, the, that Saturday that they're supposed to come, they walked right in with Alex Shilton, whom I'd never seen or heard of. I believe he was right around 16 years old. And he knew the song. He sang it meticulously. Just a talent right out of the box, you know. It's a nice guy, work easy to work with. And you know, we cut we cut the letter that day. And I thought it was a pretty good little record, but 
my goodness, it was one of the records of the year, you know. It was uh, quite a quite a time. Okay. How did you find the letter, the song? Wayne Carson. Chips gave me a tape. And he had, uh, Wayne Carson, great songwriter, had given him the tape, and he had a lot of songs. And I'd heard them all, but I, I, I liked that letter. So uh, I'd gotten it from him, but I picked out the song. And... Uh, Okay, was the arrangement on the demo like how you cut it? Well, the guitar, the little licks on the front, that was there. Wayne had played that, but the but the horns and the strings and the airplane I put on aeroplane. So halfway there. Okay, the interesting thing is. All of Alex Chilton's vocals with the box tops, except for maybe Neon Rainbow, are completely different from the ones he had with Big Star. His voice was gruffer. Can you tell us how you got that vocal? Uh, it just came out of him. I had nothing to do with it. I don't know. I, I never did hear Big Star. I don't know what they sounded like, but I think it was like some of that stuff he played me back then. It was kind of like flower child music. It was much softer and... Uh, kind of hippie music I thought so so I didn't do any of those so so later he did all that with, with uh, Big Star but I never heard it okay so the other thing about the letter it's one of the shortest hit records of all time did you realize that when you were cutting it no I just I just I just cut how much Wayne had given me <laughs> it was a minute 58 or something like that on his demo and uh, I didn't think much of it you know, back then we had a, we kind of had a wall, we, 220. 220 was your, it never needed to go any further than 220. All the program directors, anything over 220 was, uh, I don't know about that. But uh, this was a minute 58. I didn't think much of it. I, later I, I said, that thing ain't but a minute 58. But you know what? That was a great thing because jocks could play it. And in a few minutes, they could play it again. Right, and you get paid again. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so you cut it. Do you immediately know it's a hit record? No. No, I I knew it was a pretty good record. Uh, Chips told me, he, I played it to him one night. He said, you got your pretty good little record there, Penn. He said, if you'll take that airplane off. And I said, I got me a razor blade, and I picked the tape up, and I said, hey, I'll cut this tape right off the reel if you don't like it. And he said, oh, I like it. I like it. I'm just, he said, it's your record. I said, thank you. That's exactly right. It's my record. So, so I got my way and uh, it wouldn't have been the same record without the airplane. I mean, those guys in Vietnam, you know, when they heard that, they just melted. They wanted to go home. I don't blame them. So how did the record become a hit? Well, just overnight almost. You know, uh, uh, Bell Records picked it up and pressed it and put it out. And I don't know how it became a hit other than the fact that somebody started playing it. And then somebody else heard it and they started playing it. It's the same old thing, you know. But it got some promotion. It was worked on and uh, uh, just became a pretty much overnight. Okay, 
you mentioned Vietnam. How do you get out of going to Vietnam? Well, I had a little football injury. I, I, I told Daddy, I said, I'm going to go out for, for football. It was ninth grade. He said, no, he said, you're too little, you'll get hurt. And I weighed about 115, you know. I said, no, I'm tough, Daddy. I ain't going to get hurt. He said, yeah, you'll get hurt. He said, I don't want you going out. So I, I said, okay, so I, it's a small town, you know, so word gets around. So I decided to go out for cheerleader. Now, I did not want to be cheerleader, but I knew Daddy would hear about it. So anyway, I went out for cheerleader. I didn't get it. I made some arrangements. I forgot my Yale. It's all kind of stuff I did to keep from being a cheerleader. But anyway, when I got home that day, Daddy said, son, he said, come here. He said, if you want to play football that bad, get out there and hit it. He said, but you're going to get hurt. Well, I didn't I didn't think much of that. Like I said, I was tough, I thought. So I go out on the foot. We got spring training, so I go out on the, on the field, and I pick out the biggest guy out there. I said, I might as well, might as well show him who's boss. So I picked out the biggest guy, and we were doing head-on head on tackling. And... Uh, Cat hit me, big guy, twice as big as me. He hit me, and I felt something kind of give, but I didn't think much about it because I was tough, you know, so I lined back up. And just as I was getting back up there, just about ready to hit him again, I said, I raised up, I said, Coach, I think I hurt my arm when I hit this guy a while ago. He was talk. He talked like that, Brooks Johns. He said, Catchings takes Pennington's infirmary. I think he's broke his damn arm. <laughs> and sure enough, I had two places. Up, I broke it up around the shoulder and down in here, too. And they didn't even want to see me in Montgomery. They just sent the, they just sent the, uh, the uh, x-ray in. And next thing I know, I didn't have to go. That suited me fine. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. 
I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Wow. So now you cut the letter. It's a gigantic hit. Where does that leave you in Chips's eyes and opportunity-wise? Well, all of a sudden I had cut the biggest record at American Studios. He didn't much think much of that. He was pretty egotistical about his cutting, you know. And he was a great producer. I just happened to look in on the wire there and cut me a hit record, which I said I was going to. And, uh, well... You know, they started cutting a lot of people, too, him and Tommy Cogbill. And I would use the studio over at uh, John Fry's. What's that art at studio? I, sometimes I have to go there to record my stuff or the overdub. I, I would I would track it American, but sometimes I couldn't get in to do what I needed to do. So I would take another studio. But it seemed to kind of go downhill from there. We uh, We just didn't seem to be able to reconcile he so anyway i hung around for a couple more years and a couple another year or so and just decided to build my own studio and to leave and uh i think it mostly came from the fact that i'd cut a hit and it was bigger than any of his at that time so he was kind of a kind of a jealous guy you know and uh, so i just split out on my own. Okay, so how do you end up continuing to work with the uh, box tops? You have more hits with the box tops. Are they aligned with chips or are they part of your thing? No, they were they were his thing. They were signed to that company. I, 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 I used up all my box top. I mean, you know, I, I didn't cut any more after I left. So him and Togby, uh, Chips and Tommy Cogbill started cutting them and they cut Sold Deep, which was a big hit after I'd left. But, uh, you know, I didn't cut him anymore. And then later, he went to the the Jim Dixon thing, the, the big star thing. And uh, I never had any more contact with him until I was playing a show down in uh, New Orleans at the Stomp. They call it the Stomp down there. And I, I was playing a, 
I had a little part and I was playing and I came off stage with I took my guitar and Alex walked out on stage, got my guitar and carried it off stage for me. And we had a good time that night. We talked and we were good friends and uh, you know, some of them said he was mad at me, but he never had a reason. Uh, we always got along. Okay, you cut Neon Rainbow. I love that song. Tell me the story on that. Okay, that was just one of the first uh, the first album. And I love that song. Well, it's another Wayne Carson song. And I just love that little lilt, you know. And I thought it was a smash, but, you know, it, it only sold about a half million, which, which wasn't, um, you know, four million on, on the letter initially. And all of a sudden, I get a call. I'm down at the World's Fair in San Antonio. Me and Wayne are actually were on our way to Mexico with our wives. And uh, so uh, we uh, we were down there. I get a, I call in to, to Bell Records. I was supposed to check in that again. And I called them. I said, okay, what's up? They said, well, Neon Rainbow's coming off the charts. It ain't selling. Really? No, it's not selling. Sold a half a million. That's all. I said, well, ain't that a good bit? He said, no, that's not nothing. What that other song done. So suddenly I'm on, uh, I'm kind of, you know, they expecting me to come up with another letter. That's when, uh, and nobody was sending me any songs. Wayne had quit sending me songs. Nobody would send me songs. Uh, they just weren't coming my way. And I called Spooner, and I said, Spooner, we got to write the, the next box top hit. Okay, fine, he said. So we get together on a, anyway, we get together on a Tuesday night. I had set the session up for maybe Thursday morning. Got to all the guys called and going to cut it American and figured me and Spooner would come up with a song. Well, we just tried and tried and tried. We'd, we'd tear up paper throw it in the can and we drank coffee and we did all kinds of stuff trying to come to a place that we had a hit. Nothing, nothing. Finally in despair we just I just said that's it, Spoon, let's go home. He said, right. So we go across the street to this little barbecue place. It was open, it was five thirty six in the morning. And we walk in and we order. We're sitting at uh, we're sitting at a little booth and uh, you know, just out of nowhere, Spooner put his head over on the table. And he said, I could cry like a baby. I said, what did you say? He said, cry like a baby. I said, Spooner, that's it. It hit me just like a lightning bolt. And then it hit him. And suddenly we were alive. Now, we had just about died, but we were alive. <laughs> I told the cat, I said, just keep the money. I thought it was money. I said, keep the food. We don't need it now. So here we go back across the street, and I got the key to the studio. I always had a key to the studio, whatever studio I was at. And so, you know, the time we got to the key, to the to the lock, I already had, when I think about the good love you gave me, I cry like a baby. To boom, in we go. I said, Spooner, get the, get the, get the, the, the B3 back on. I'll turn on the... the uh, the, the board and stuff. We'd just been in there, you know, but it was still warm, so we turned it on. And and I put on a, a quarter-inch reel, 
quarter inch tape, a, a big reel. And we wrote the song while that reel was, was recording. And when we came back in the control room and heard it, I said, I ain't leaving this building. And this is about seven in the morning. He said, me neither. And you know, we just washed our face, drank another cup of coffee and waited him out, waited for the band to came in, come in. And when Alex heard that, he said, all right. So he was, he was really in to cry like a baby. Okay, and we and cut how it that day. How long did it take to actually cut it? Well, it took about two hours. We might have, you know, we, we got sounds and then we got, we probably went through it three or four times. And it was a three track. American was three track at that time. So I had all the band on one track. I had Alex on one track and I had an empty track. And that's where I put my horns and strings right there. And at the end, when Alex had quit singing, I had a little space. That's where I put the airplane. Okay. So now you build your own studio. Where do you build your studio? Uh, there in Memphis, uh, uh, over on, uh, what was that street? Highland. Oh. Highland Street. Uh, beautiful sounds. It was a good studio. But uh, I never did do much over there. I, I cut nobody's fool over there on myself. And I, I did a record on B.J. Thomas that never come out. But I was not a businessman, still ain't. But, uh, and I was still doing a bit of drinking. And eventually I lost the studio. You don't ever, you don't ever gain till you lose something, you know. But I learned a lot in that exchange. So, but I had bought the I had bought the uh, the land and, and the building, so didn't lose everything. But I, I did lose my equipment that I put in there. But uh, you know, like I say, I'm no businessman. I, I I can do business, but I don't really know how. Now you say you learned a number of things. Can you tell us a couple of things you learned? Well, you just learn sometimes not to trust people. It's bad and it's sad, but you know, you got to get things wrote down on a piece of paper if you're going to claim your part. So I learned that. I learned that you can't drink on the job. Uh, I learned that business just ain't going to come in just because you cut a hit. Okay, the studio closes. What's your move after that? I came. I came to Nashville. Uh, well, I guess I I had a little old studio there in Memphis, a little, in a little carriage house, uh, like there uh, a year, maybe a year or two, and uh, it was a little four track. And I, I I write songs and put them down and hang out there, and, but. Uh, then we moved to Nashville in 75, December 74. Okay, so you have a number of hits. How's your economic situation? Because you talk about not getting paid by Conway Twitty's song. Uh, are you making enough or in the down periods are you scraping by? Well, you know, I was making okay until uh, 68 when, the, when Martin Luther King got killed there in Memphis. And that changed everything. Well, uh, the black singers quit coming to to the to the white owned studios and, and it just went downhill and 
And I was writing for all these people, you know. And so suddenly they didn't need my songs. They weren't there. And so there was a big a big space there that I just didn't write much. I I was kind of kind of mixed up during that point. I, I didn't know just what my next move was gonna be. But I came to Nashville not to be a country writer, but just just to be some kind of writer. You know, I mean I was trying to keep on going and uh, and during that time I wouldn't do it really that good. As you say, I wouldn't I wouldn't flush with money. Uh, around 70, I came here in 75, around 78, Linda Waltz is in and tells me I need to take the, uh, I need to take the uh, ring off the phone in the garage. I said, why? She said, that's $5 a month. She said, we're, we're running low. We need to just cut everything we can out. And I said, okay, okay. So wasn't long after that, that that the Commitment movie came out. And they had cut Do Right Woman and Dark End of the Street. And good job on them, too. That, that was, those people did a great job. Little Irish movie. And suddenly, they started sending me checks again, you know. And I said, oh, maybe we're not through. <laughs> 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 you know, there's all kind of doubt can, can, can fill your mind when, when you're not writing. Okay, so how does uh, Aretha end up cutting uh, Do Right Woman? Well, I was back in 67, I believe 67, 68, I guess 68 or 9. Well, I just left, uh, I guess it's 67. I, I left uh, Muscle Shoals in 66 and come to American in Memphis. And... Uh, so Mormon and I running around together, we wrote Dark End of the Street and uh, Do Right Woman, kind of in a close space. And uh, so he got called to play guitar on Aretha Franklin. She was going to cut it fame. And he was a great guitar player at that time. And uh, so I said, hey, I'm going too. You know, we were, we were pards, so. I jumped in and went too, but right before we went down there, he we put a little tape down of just him playing guitar and me singing Dark End, uh, excuse me, Do Right Woman. So we get down to Muscle Shows and uh, they cut I Never Loved a Man the way I love you, which was a big hit. And we all knew it and everybody knew it. And they knew it so well that everybody started drinking a little. And uh, before you know it, uh, so anyway, Mr. Wexler, Jerry Wexler came to me. I'll go back to that in a minute. But he came to me and said, hey, Dan, baby. He said, I'll cut that do-right song. He said, she played it to me a while ago. I'll cut it, but there's no words for the bridge. And I said, well, we can get you some words. Uh, okay. I said, just give me a few minutes. So I went over to this little closet. And I'm over there, and I'm, I'm trying to come up with something. And so I said, well, what's your favorite song? And I had to say it was, it's a man's world. So that was my favorite song at the time. That's one of my favorites yet. <laughs> and so I said, well, they say it's a man's world. Wrote that down. Now I'm stumped again. <clears throat> Mr. Wexler stuck his head in the door and said, hey, Dan, honey, baby, what you got for me? I said, 
This is what I got, Jerry. They say that it's a man's world. He said, I've got your next part. I said, what's that? He said, but you can't prove that by me. <laughs> I wrote that down. I said, thank you, Jerry. And then, you know, I've got two lines now. And the next thing I know, Aretha sticks her head in the door. Hey, Dan, honey, what you got for Aretha? I said, this is what I got, Aretha. They say that it's a man's world, but you can't prove that by me. She said, I've got your next part. And I said, what's that? She said, as long as we're together, baby, show some respect for me. I wrote that down. Thank you, Aretha. All of a sudden, we had words for the bridge. <laughs> so now I got to go out and sing. She, she, she likes it, but she, she is not ready to make a commitment to sing it. <laughs> so now I got to go sing the pilot vocal in her key. She had found her key. And man, was it high. It was way up there. So I go out and I'm doing the pilot. And when we run through it about once, maybe the twice, the second run through, and then all of a sudden, I look around, and everybody's gone. And I'm standing at the mic. And I go, what's this? And so finally, I think one of the secretaries came in and said, Dan, the session's over. I said, what's wrong? She said, Jerry's pulling her out of here. He's taking her back to New York. I said, no kidding. So I said to myself, well, you're not going to make any money today, kiddo, because it was not coming off. It was just blam, bam, you know, and I do right, and I went up high, and it sounded off. And so then later, uh, Mr. Wexler said, called everybody to come to New York to finish the album. Well, I said, I'm going to, so sure enough, I did. And I go up there, and just as we come out of the elevator, just as we come out of the elevator, Jerry said, Dan, you and Chips come with me. And we, we went down to the Atlantic control room, and he played us the do-right woman with Aretha playing piano, her and her sister singing. It was big-time magic. It still is. I play it now, and it's like, wow, what a record. And when it left Alabama, it, was, it, was, it, didn't even, it wasn't even nuts and bolts. It was just nuts. <laughs> Lando will get that in a minute. Okay, so, uh, you know, having been to a couple of these places, they're radically different. I mean, Nashville is very different from Memphis. I haven't been to Muscle Shoals, I've been to Alabama just barely. Can you tell us the difference between all those places? Well, I, I can just tell you in recording, uh, recording language, uh, Muscle Shoals, well, Memphis, let's go with Memphis. Memphis is down on the, on the Mississippi River, and it's just so, such a magical city. It was, really, before Dr. King got shot, but it, it was when I rolled in there in 66, it was clean, it was magical, and, you know, you could look in some of those ladies' eyes and almost get a song. They, they, they carried songs in their eyes, and... And then you come to Nashville, and, and Nashville, and it, it's like low. It's like it's got the low mids and the bass and the middle and some highs, but not over highs. You come to Nashville, and it's it's a wonderful place to record, also. But it's it's up in the it's more mountainous. It's in the high end of things. You still can get the bass, but you need to go direct because. It's not the same recording air that Memphis has got. It's see, different. See, 
uh, the what? Sea level. See, the sea level is different. And then you go down to Muscle Shoals, <clears throat> and it's just almost in between them. So Muscle Shoals was a fantastic place to record because uh, of the sea level. It's down a little, but it ain't down as low. And then New Orleans goes on even lower, you know, than Memphis. And you and that's a that's a that's a lower sea level. It's a great place to record. But my favorite place is Memphis. Okay. Now, ultimately, after you leave, there's a schism in Muscle Shoals where Barry Beckett and those guys start Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. Do you have a take on that? Well, I wasn't around, but I do know kind of what happened. It, uh, you know, they, they went over and built their own studio with the help of Jerry Wexler. He was kind of behind that because I guess him and Rick had had a few falling out things. But uh, anyway... They built their own studio, and uh, Jerry started sending people there, and people started coming there, and they cut a lot of hit records in that little place. But, uh, you know, that's about all I know of it. Uh, they did go on down later to the river and built a bigger studio. That's where I cut Do Right Man. So, you know, there, it was a happening thing. But Rick got his, you know, you can't stop Rick Hall. He would. He just. He just looked around. He got a bunch of other musicians. He kept on going. He got some more writers. He. You can't stop him. You know. I couldn't do that. I couldn't put just put put a band together, just because I needed them. I mean, I couldn't do it, because the drummer's probably gonna quit before nightfall. <laughs> I, I I couldn't put up with all of that. But Rick could. I mean, he went through people and he would he would teach them how to record, and he's the daddy of the muscle show sound. Okay, you mentioned Dr. King being shot. How much was racism a factor with you growing up, being in the music business, being in the South? It was zero. I didn't, where I came up in Vernon, there was no racism. There wasn't hardly any black folks. There was a few lived outside of town there, but I had no contact with them until I got to Muscle Shoals, to Florence. And I met Arthur Alexander, and um, so never was a real big, never hit me in the face until I saw TV well, at night, you know, I'd see what's happening on the TV, you know, I went, wow, that's strange, but uh, it really never, never did affect me that much. Okay, I see you're wearing overalls, and you're also wearing them in some of the photos. Is that a fashion choice, or have you always worn your overalls? How do you decide to wear them? Well, I put a pair on one day, and they were so neat. Lots of pockets, lots of space. <laughs> Just, you know, I mean, I'm built for comfort, not for speed. <laughs> and, and, and you know, I just kept going. I, kept, I just kept wearing them. And I don't think I've worn anything else. Maybe a funeral, I might have worn a pair of slacks to my mama's funeral. But otherwise... I've got new ones that I wear on the show. I, I wear them on the show, but I but I do this, you know. I, I put a I put a real nice shirt over them, and if people come up and they'll say, "I thought you were going to wear your overalls," and I said, "Well, I did." And they said, "I said, see," and then they then they're happy. So now it's become a thing, you know, for my gigs. They they expect overalls, and I got them. You know, I I wear them because they're the they're the comfortless things in this world. 
And prior to this COVID era, how much were you working on the road? Um, <clears throat> you know, I just take, I've always just taken what the, what, what comes in and I book my own self. So I'm not trying to, to work every night, you know, or to, uh, to be a road musician. I, 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 I'm not built right for that. I always knew I wouldn't. And, and, and that, and working in the studio was just right for me. But before the COVID thing, I guess I was playing eh, once or twice a month. Oh, really? That much? Another question is, you talk about being young, drinking, staying up all night. How'd you keep your marriage together? I had a good woman. Better than me. <laughs> and uh, she put up with a lot. She's still with me. Uh, I give it all to her. She, she was very good. Okay. And you also mentioned working late at night. Do you find you're more creative later in the day or it doesn't really matter? Later in the day, definitely. I'm, I'm no good in the morning for nothing. Uh, you know, back there when Daddy fixed me up a mule and plow and stuff, when he'd go to the government plant, him and Mama, that would be about 6.30 in the morning. We'd be having breakfast. And he'd tell me all these things he wanted me to do. And when they left, I'd go back to bed. And I'd sleep to my my common 930. That's that was when I my body woke up. And then I'd just run real fast all day trying to get done what he wanted. I usually made it. <laughs> but uh I'm I'm not a morning person. And I I start waking up about one. Uh by seven o'clock I'm pretty good. Uh I hit my stride if if I'm right with somebody around midnight. And, and we're good for a while. And so if you're not writing, if you're in the COVID era, what time do you go to bed? Oh, I go to bed about 8 o'clock, but I'll watch the tube till, till I fall asleep. Okay, and to what degree are you writing with other people over these last few years? Well, not, a, not as much as I was. I used to would write with anybody. And, you know, I'd ask them if they didn't ask me, just a stranger, somebody that wrote, and I'd, we'd get together. Here in Nashville, I wrote with a lot of people that lived here. But pretty soon, that, that kind of run thin to me. I, I, wasn't getting, I, wasn't much, I wasn't getting much out of my gut. It was mostly coming out of my head. Uh, brain songs, all thought up, you know, by good songwriters. But... Uh, you know, uh, lately, uh, hadn't been with Spooner in a good while. We're going to probably get back together one of these days. But I wrote one one song with Buzz Kaysen for this album, particularly for it. And then I wrote two songs with uh, Will McFarland, the guitar player on this album. Two new songs and three with him. And I wrote two songs by myself, which is kind of odd. But uh, I wrote them. And that's when I got the idea, hey, you got some songs here, and you got a few laying around you like, why don't you cut a record? Okay, that comes full circle. Before we get uh, to the conclusion, though, what is it about writing with someone else that is so appealing? Well, it's fun. It's more fun. <clears throat> These people who can write by themselves and have fun, I don't know about. I, don't, I can't do that. I mean, you know, I write 
one every once in a while by myself. I get serious enough to write a song by myself. But if I'm writing with somebody else, there is a fun factor that just comes into the room. I mean, we might tell a joke. You know, if nothing's happening, if we sit here for 45 minutes and we nobody hits a chord, nobody talks about a song idea, nothing's happening, we might go bowling. We might go to a movie. We got to keep things moving. We got to move around a little bit until the time of the night is right or the afternoon is right that the idea hits somebody or the chord change hits somebody. But being able to uh, bounce it off of somebody you respect. Uh, usually I try to write with musicians who are better than I am. I'm a fair guitar uh, strummer. I can keep rhythm, but I'm not a picker. But I, I write with some of these people who can really play, and that's really helpful. Okay. You talked about Cry Like a Baby where uh, lightning struck, and then you also talked about making a commitment to writing a song. Are songs better if they come from pure inspiration, or they can they be equally as good if you sit down and make a commitment, hey, we don't have anything, we're going to start right now? It, either one can be just as good as the other. I mean, I, I think we have to pull them out of the air when we ain't got nothing. You know, I always looked at it that way. I mean, God's got them all up there. If you don't, if you got one and you don't write it tonight, somebody else might. <clears throat> you know, we wrote "I'm Your Puppet." wasn't wasn't a wasn't a month went by to we heard this song by Elvis. I'm just a puppet on a string. So I think these ideas are circling around up here in the in the atmosphere. Some of them, and you can have one if you can just make the commitment. You got to commit to do it. You know, you you can't be playing. If you commit to write a song by yourself or with somebody else, you're all in, like 150 percent. And you might win. <laughs> you, you know. Well, I think you made a great commitment to your new album, and people should really listen to it. That's Living on Mercy. And thanks so much for making the commitment to talk to me. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for calling me. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sets. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.